What's good, y'all? Before we get into this episode of Small Doses, I have to remind you, if you have not gotten your tickets to Smart Funny in Black May 18th at the NoHo in Los Angeles, then you are going to miss out. Well, baby, I mean, go get your tickets before you miss out, right? We're going to have Wayne Brady versus Jaleel White. It's going to be an extravaganza, a black extravaganza. And if you want to support the show, but you're just not here in LA, guess what? You can donate. Go to smartfunnyandblack.com, click the donate button, and put whatever you want you want to give. You know why? Because the amount that you donate is going to go towards providing tickets for those who want to go to the show, but maybe just had inflation hit them a bit too hard, okay? See, that's what we do at Smart Funny and Black. We are a community. Also, if you have not checked out the Amanda Seals show, then what are you waiting for? Our radio show, The Amanda Seals Show, is available wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out me and Jeremiah Like the Bible, breaking the things down every day. We got news, we got politics, we got pop culture, and more going down every day wherever you get your podcasts or also on your terrestrial radio. See, we're syndicated. So go to theamandaseelshow.com and find out if we're in your city so you can listen on your radio. The Amanda Seals Show is a Radio 1 syndicated show with Reach Media, and you can check us out Monday through Friday across the nation and globally wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget, when it comes to Small Doses Podcast, sign up for our Patreon, The Amandaverse, and you can get ad-free extended content versions of the show, as well as the bonus content. You know you don't want to play yourself and miss out on that, so make sure you go to theamandaverse.com, and if you want to be a part of making sure that this podcast goes to as far lengths as possible, then you know what you need to do. You need to be with us on YouTube at Amanda Seals TV every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern for our premiere. See, the way it works is the more numbers a video gets on YouTube in the first hour, the more YouTube is going to push it out to the people. And we all know the goal is to get this to as many people as possible. Okay, all of that is done. And we're just beginning. It's time to get into the next episode of Small Doses, Side Effects of Police Gangs. Ooh, child, this one's a doozy. It's so funky. <laughs> okay, folks. This is a very serious episode. Dun, dun. We're talking about law. We're talking about order. And actually the complete absence thereof that takes place in the sheriff's department as discovered and uncovered by journalist extraordinaire Cerise Castle. Is it, wait, is it Castles or Castle? Castle. Because you know black people will put an S on anything. <laughs> Castle! Cerise, it is an honor to have you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Listen, you're an actual journalist. <laughs> I like that. Hey, I like that. Thank you. I, I appreciate think that. That's like a new, like, we can't just say journalist anymore. We have to be like, are you a journalist or like a journalist journalist? Because these days, like, people just call themselves journalists just for anything. You know, they'll just like read a story on a prompter and be like, I'm a journalist. It's like, mm, you're a really good reader. You're effective at reading a prompter. But I really wanted to have you here because I was so shocked at what you had uncovered. And not because I was shocked that there are gangs in the police department, but more so that you were so diligent to like stick with something that was so dangerous and that is so dangerous to get out in the open. And I think a lot of what has plagued real journalism these days, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is just that folks don't want to upset the apple cart too much. 100% yes. You know, I pitched this story about the deputy gangs in the sheriff's department to 
a ton of local outlets out here before I published it with Knock LA, which is a small community journalism outlet. And they all told me no. And what was their reasons? Well, the predominant reason was this is a story that's happening in areas where we don't have readers, subscribers, people paying for our product, and it's not worth us making the investment. And another reason is that when you expose corruption that's happening in a department that does a lot of friendly business with some of these bigger legacy media outlets, they aren't really interested in doing that. So once again, money is the root of all evil. God damn it. Capitalism always shows up. You know what I'm saying? It always shows up. It's like little mama on the stage at that one VMAs. You know, it just always shows up. So let's take it back. Let's take it back. Tell me about the journey to journalism. Yeah. So I found out that I wanted to be a journalist. I was inspired, rather. You found out? (laughs) I I was told, really. Really, Really? I got told, yes. In eighth grade, my middle school, we took a trip to Rockefeller Center in New York. And Ann Curry was there. Are you a New Yorker? I am an Angelino, born and bred. Okay, all right. Yeah. But my mom is from the Bronx. New York. That's my mom. Okay. She's from the Bronx. You give like, you know, me. (laughs) I don't know if it's the leather jacket or what, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) I take that as a compliment. Thank you. You should. You should. (laughs) We're cut different. And I say we because I spent more time in New York than anywhere else before anybody gets saucy. Okay. So you were told on this trip at Rockefeller Center by Ann Curry, the great journalist. She came out to where we were gathered in the little, you know, rotunda. Rotunda, exactly. And she was talking to us and she asked me what I wanted to do Mm -hmm. when I became an adult. And I told her I wasn't sure. And she asked me what my favorite subjects were in school. And I told her English. I told her I loved writing and I loved history. And she said, oh, you might want to consider becoming a journalist. So I said, okay. Went home, joined the school paper, and (laughs) I've been doing journalism ever since. Listen, we have very similar spirits. Like everything I've ever done in my life has been because someone was like, oh, you should try that. And I'm like, okay. Like DJing, someone was like, you know what? You should try DJing. You know a lot of songs. I was like, okay. And I got turntables. Rap, same thing. I was talking to somebody and we were having a conversation. He was like, you have a good voice for rapping. Have you ever rapped? I'm like, no, I guess I'm a rapper now. We're going to start rapping. But I think a lot of folks... Like, they don't make those pivots. Like, you know, people tell them things and they're just like, oh, I don't know. But you never know where your passion is going to lie. Some people are like, what's my passion? What's my passion? I don't know my passion. It's like your passion could have been told to you like 34 times, but you wasn't listening. You weren't receptive. But that's so dope that at eight, you were so receptive. And then that started you on this course. Was there any point in the process where you were like, you know, maybe I'm not going to be able to be the kind of journalist I want to be? Ooh, Yes, 100% yes. You know, journalism, like a lot of other industries, is racked with misogyny, mm. racism, mm. homophobia, mm. transphobia. The hit list. The hit list. Yeah. And as a queer Black woman, there were so many times that I was put into boxes, told no, told that I could only get so far and that I had to do things this way, only this way, and never deviate. And that's really gutting when, you know, you're seeing your dreams like crushed and compromised before you by other people. Yes. That's devastating. So there were many Mm -hmm. times where I questioned, you know, do I really even want to be a journalist because I'm so miserable? There were many times that I almost left. (laughs) Because I'm so miserable. What was the turning point? Or has there been one? The turning point was really choosing myself and my happiness 
In 2020, I was working for a local radio station here in Los Angeles, KCRW. Oh, of course. Yeah. Unfortunately, from day one there, I experienced constant racist harassment. Um, No. Yeah. At LA's NPR? Unfortunately, yes. Get it to KCRW. I mean, where else am I going to listen to? Fresh air and the eclectic ride, et cetera, et cetera. Now I don't want to listen. Well, there is KPCC. What's KPCC? That's the other LA public radio station. Okay. So we have, right. we have, we have two. Luckily. Okay. All right. KPCC. You might two be basketball the... teams, two NPR stations. <laughs> Touche. Touche. <laughs> so they were funny style at KCRW, huh? Very much so. I also helped unionize KCRW, which is a fantastic way to alienate your bosses <laughs> And make yourself public enemy number one. Got it. So after we got the union contract, the company offered all employees a buyout so they didn't have to pay those newly negotiated fair rates that help support people at, you know, a living wage. Right. And we were told that you could either take the buyout or if you were a redundancy, you would be let go with nothing. And it was very quickly communicated to me that I was a redundancy. So I chose to take the buyout. Okay. And leave. Yeah. And at that point, I had already started researching deputy gangs and I was really interested in the subject. I've heard about deputy gangs from the time I was a little kid growing up out here. Yeah. So it's like common knowledge in LA. Very much so. Very much. I think more so in certain neighborhoods than others. Where are you from? I moved around a lot growing up. I was in and out of different families' homes. I didn't always live at home. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, my mom, my brother, other families that I lived with, teachers, mm-hmm. um, other trusted adults from as early as I can remember. I was told, you know, be careful of white deputies with bald heads because they're probably Vikings. It was common knowledge that this was an issue. Not the Vikings. Okay, so I feel like early on, you know, we're told, especially black children are told, like, be careful of cops, right? This is a whole other level. And now you're telling me, because you're an Angelino, you're, you're LA raised, like, so there's gangs, and then there's cops, and then there's cop gangs. I mean, that's just, it feels like it's the threat never stops. So you were always aware of this when you were younger. And what was the inciting incident that made you say, you know what, I need to actually research this and expose this. Because I feel like there's always this that tipping point where where you decide, like, this can't just be a thing I know about. It needs to be a thing I tell people about. Definitely. And I was always interested in researching this story. I can remember being a little kid, going to the library and looking for books, looking for newspaper articles about it. But there was never anything that was a deep, like, anthology history of all the deputy gangs. There would be, like, a one-off about one deputy or Mm -hmm. one gang, but nothing about everything. And so fast forward to 2020 in May, Mm -hmm. uh, the world was reacting to the murder of George Floyd. And here in Los Angeles, like many other cities, there were protests happening, huge protests, the largest in history. Mm -hmm. And I was covering those protests for KCRW. And on May 30th, 2020, I was out on Beverly and Fairfax Mm -hmm. here in LA. And I was talking to people about the protests and what they were experiencing when all of a sudden LAPD pulled into the intersection in full riot gear and began shooting with less lethal, so-called less lethal munitions into the crowd. And I was hit with one of those rubber bullets. And I was pretty severely injured as a result of that. 
and I was placed on bed rest for oh six months. Yeah. Six months? Six months. I really horribly messed up my ankle. I was in a cast. I had crutches. I couldn't walk. Well, I mean, it's still a bullet coming out of a propulsion, you know, device. It shattered your ankle? What happened to my ankle was I like rolled it and I did a bone bruise and I tore a bunch of tendons in there. It was pretty intense. Yeah. So I had to be in a cast. I had to sit at home on my couch. And the doctor said, you can't go into the field. You can't do any reporting. You just have to be at home for the next six months. And yeah, I mean, that was pretty much my reaction. I felt really (laughs) horrible about that being, you know, in my newsroom, the only black woman reporting and doing news. And we were just in this moment that I really felt like I needed to be contributing. Absolutely. This was that was our time. It still is our time. But in that moment, especially, I, I needed to be doing something. So a couple of days after I was shot, I was sitting on my couch watching local news, and I saw my friend, Kate Cagle. She's an anchor at Spectrum News here in L.A., and she had the deposition testimony of a deputy at the Compton station. Just a couple of days before this broadcast aired, a 18-year-old security guard by the name of Andres Guardado was shot and killed in Gardena by two deputies. And Andres was shot in the back over 10 times while he was on his knees. And what Kate managed to get her hands on was deposition testimony from another deputy who worked at that station who said on the record under oath that the deputies who killed Andres were prospects in a deputy gang. And I saw that and all of my childhood recollections and curiosity Mm. about these deputy gangs just came rushing back to me. And I thought, okay, wow, I'm not doing anything for the next six months. I'm just stuck on my couch. I don't have to leave my couch to file public records requests and start looking into this from that angle. Why don't I start doing that? So after a couple of weeks, I had been watching videos from the Board of Supervisors. They are the local government agency here in L.A. County. And In one of these meetings, they instructed our county council, who is basically the county attorney, Mm -hmm. to prepare a report about any civil case filed against the county where deputy gangs were mentioned and part of the case. So I thought, hmm, that seems like something I should take a look at. Because even the fact that they are asking them to do that means that they exist. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So I filed that public records request. And a couple of weeks later, I got the list. And it was over 60 cases, totaling about $50 million that taxpayers paid for. So these are cases that had already been finished? That were settled. Okay. They're always, most of the time they're settled. I would say 90% of the time they're settled out of court. And the cases were specifically against the gangs? They named the county as the defendant. Okay. But- they will outline in their, you know, claim, okay, say someone is killed. They oftentimes will put, while they're stating the facts, it's alleged that the people who killed him, these deputies, were members of a deputy gang. And then often what happens is they'll pull those deputies in for a deposition, which is where they're sworn under oath and they have to answer these questions. And what comes out in these depositions is, yes, I do have a gang tattoo. Yes, I am a member of the executioners. And the county historically has done a really good job at keeping that stuff quiet and making sure we don't find out about it. And we don't know the extent of how often this is happening and how much it is costing taxpayers. Why are they even saying it under oath? Why aren't they just lying? 
Fantastic question, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I'm in a gang, I'm under oath. I'm like, I ain't no gang. Like, yeah. Well, there are some consequences to lying under oath. Perjury is a crime. That being said, I myself have seen deputies lie in court mm-hmm. and yeah. nothing come of it. But I imagine that is something kind of hanging over their head a little bit because they do answer these questions in front of often their attorneys who are paid for by their unions. And those attorneys know, okay, he's lying. Got it. So when this like epiphany came, like, okay, there's all these cases. This is a real thing. What then as a journalist is the like logical next step? So that's when I started pitching the stories. I had left my job at that point. Well, no, let me back up. I pitched it to KCRW. They told me no. I quit my job. I (laughs) Fuck y'all. Got it? (laughs) Yeah. Hit a lemonade on that one. Mm -hmm. Um, Started pitching it around. Everyone else told me no. My girlfriend, incredibly intelligent, as always, told me to take it to Knock LA. They immediately told me yes. Got it. And at that point... I I had my list and I started looking at all those case files. I went down to the courthouse and I was requesting hundreds of pages of cases and taking them home and reading them and calling up attorneys and talking to them about it, calling up the families of people that had been killed, sometimes calling up the deputies themselves and asking them about their tattoos and what exactly was going on here. And what I came away with at first was a 15-part series published at Knock LA where I outlined 18 different deputy gangs that Mm -hmm. I had found. And they have cost, as far as I know, about $100 million of taxpayer money. But the real number is probably a lot higher than that. The $100 million, that's just settlement. That's just what the county agrees to say, okay, family, you can take this like six, seven million. But on top of that, Uh, County taxpayers are also responsible for attorney's fees on both sides. And these are attorneys that cost, you know, $500 an hour. And these cases go on for four, five years and sometimes even longer than that. And those attorney's fees can be in the millions as well. So the real number is probably much, much higher. I don't think people truly, truly understand that the police are a publicly supported institution. Like I see people say things like, you know, we need the police because they're, you know, they have to protect us, but they're not protecting us. And I'm like, yes. And then I see people say like, you know, what do you expect police to do? You know, they're this, they're that. I'm just like, we are publicly supporting them. They are, the police are KCRW. They're public radio. It's public police, but there's no real, I don't even think there's a public knowledge that we are paying for these types of settlements. I talk about it all the time, but I think people don't truly understand that we're paying for the defendant's and the plaintiff's lawyers. And then a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, never is the actual fraternal order of police held responsible, like the actual union of the police. Like there's never any real repercussion for police other than like getting fired. Is that really? And that rarely happens. Police being like fired for these things. I have never in any of the deputy gang cases that I looked at seen a deputy fired for killing someone and it coming out that they're in a deputy gang. Well, I think that's the other part of this is that, yes, there are these financial repercussions for these gangs existing, but there's also the fact that there's lives that are being lost 
for the sake of even like getting jumped in the gang, I guess. Like that's one of the rituals sometimes to kill a civilian. Did, is that a thing? That is what has been alleged and told to me. Yes. That for some of these gangs, you need to kill someone to get in. A lot of these gangs have white supremacist undertones or are explicitly white supremacist, but mm -hmm. they often allow people of color to join as well. And it's said that if you are a person of color, part of these gangs, you need to kill someone of your same race or ethnicity to become a full member. You see, y'all, that's some weaponized cooning right there. That's a whole other level. So what is the value of the gangs within the police force? That's a really great question. The sheriff's department is completely built on this culture of deputy gangs. Oh. Deputies that have deputy gang affiliations, tattoos, and are full members are often quickly elevated to positions of power in the department. We have had three undersheriffs that have tattoos of some kind affiliated with these gangs. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had some of them, several people in high levels of membership ending up in federal prison as a result of some of these tactics that are employed as part of deputy gang, just, you know, police work. So when you decided to step into this, did you find it difficult to get people to talk or was it a kind of open secret that it was like, you can talk about it because you're not going to do anything about it? Very much an open secret. You know, all levels of government have known about this for the past 30 years, the federal government, California state legislature, the board of supervisors here in Los Angeles County, the district attorney. I could go on and on. This is nothing new to them. And for the past, you know, 30 some odd years, it's been very easy to just pay people off and make the problem go away. Do they operate outside of the sheriff's department as a gang? Like, is there organized crime involved with this gangs? Like, do they involve themselves in corruption outside of just physical harm, but is there actually money exchanges or drug involvement, et cetera? I haven't been able to confirm anything like that, mm -hmm. but I've had many sources tell me, yes, absolutely. I had a source the other day tell me a story about a deputy that broke into a home of a local um, dealer and took all of his merchandise and never reported it to evidence and no one knows where it went to the streets. That's where it went to the streets. How have you been able to do this and remain safe? You know, I, things like this, sharing this information has helped exponentially. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. You know, what if that's the opposite? No, you know, talking about it and, you know, becoming a public figure it really, it's like an insurance policy. When I first mm. did this work and I was just sort of a nameless local reporter, it would be very easy to have something happen to me and no one would care or really know about it. We would care. Well, thank you. We so really, so really care. <laughs> but now that people are, you know, familiar with my work and familiar with this story, it's, it's a lot harder to do something like that. I used to get death threats you know, multiple times a day, every day. There was one point where I saw deputies sitting outside of my home and I don't live in an area patrolled by the sheriff's department. So that was really unusual. I don't really get that stuff anymore. And I feel like the more I talk about it and the more I continue to share, it becomes more difficult to 
try to attempt anything like that. Good. Well, I'm glad that we can be a part of in helping ensuring your safety. What is the difference between the sheriff's department and the police department? Yeah, that's a great question. So here in Los Angeles County, it's a little tricky because we have Los Angeles County, but we also have the city of Los Angeles, right? So LAPD, they patrol within the city of LA. And the sheriff's department, they're mostly responsible for unincorporated Los Angeles County. So think out way up north, Lancaster, Palmdale, out west in Calabasas, Malibu area, down south, Willowbrook, West Athens area, and then in the east, in east Los Angeles, that's all sheriff's department. And you'll also get some cities that contract the sheriff's department to provide law enforcement services mm -hmm. like Norwalk, West Hollywood, Compton. And the sheriff's department also gets contracts inside the city of L.A. at the community colleges, at the um, metro services, that kind of thing. I don't think I've ever knew that. Like I had no, as far as I'm concerned, I'm like, y'all got a badge, y'all got a gun, y'all got a problem. Like that's just it. I mean, is there a preconceived notion that the sheriff's department is any different than the police department? Like, are they expected to operate differently in terms of, like, how they interact with people? Like, are they considered safer or usually are they more, like, wild? Like, anything like that? Within police circles, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department is considered to be hard-ass police officers. Kick down the door first, ask questions later type of policing. I don't know why. I think I do know why. Because I think I think of, like, the Andy... Um, Losing my memory. The Andy Griffith Show. Like, that's what I think of when I think of sheriffs. Like, we're going to go and we're going to help you find the dog. And I don't think of like, we're going to go and we're going to lynch this nigger. You know, because that's what that's really <laughs> what it is. And people don't really understand how racist L.A. is. Yeah. Like, I think people think L.A. and they just think like N.W.A. and the Lakers. But L.A. is a racist city. And I'm sure that the police department and the sheriff's department are carrying on that legacy with these gangs. How have you seen that show up outside of just like when you said there's gangs that are very obviously white supremacists? Like, tell me more about that. Yeah. I mean, there is a gang out in North Los Angeles County um, operating at the correctional facility called IPA. And that is a deputy gang uh, built on tenements from the Ku Klux Klan. IPA, it stands for Inclusive Province Akia. Akia is a Ku Klux Klan term that means a Klansman I am. Their logo borrows heavily from a Ku Klux Klan design. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say beyond that. That's <laughs> no, pretty I'm explicit. Just, that, yeah, no, I'm just <laughs> wanting to hear like yeah. about how these gangs show up in this way because a lot of this is hard for, I think, a lot of people to understand because we already think of the police as a gang. Right. So it's like, oh, there's a gang in a gang. It's It feels like overtime. And I wonder when we talk about this idea of like good police, is it possible when there are gangs within the department for you as an individual to do good policing? They make it incredibly difficult. Many so-called good police officers, officers that are trying to do the right thing by reporting this kind of behavior, going to their supervisors, are often forcibly pushed out of the department, subjected to forced psychological exams. They've had dead animals placed on their property. They've had hearses sent to their home. And I've even heard of drive-bys being done on their homes as a result of reporting this kind of stuff. 
So they're really doing the gang thing for real. Yes. They're like, we're going to do drive-bys. We're not just playing gang. We're going to really do this gang thing. So do the internal police gangs, do they fight each other? They do. Yes. Over what? Over mostly petty shit, honestly. Um, If a, let's say, for example, there's a new recruit. There's a class of new recruits that come to a station and they don't really like what's going on with the older deputy gang members. Sometimes they'll start their own gang and they'll go head to head with each other for control of the station. So the young gangs versus the new gangs. So it's like young trash versus old trash. Very much so. And so when they fight each other, is that through physical violence? Like, Yes. Yes. There have been two brawls that we know of that happened at so-called off-training parties. This is when the new recruits get off their patrol training. There are two of these instances where there have been full-scale brawls with 10, 20 people coming hand-to-hand fighting. Yeah. There's one gang, the Banditos, at the East Los Angeles station that to punish people that are going up against them, they knock people out in the parking lot and just leave them lying there. And this is happening like on the premises of this the precinct? This is happening at the station. Yeah. It's the Wild West? hmm Yeah. Do they have like gang signs and stuff? Oh, yeah. They have gang signs. Let me find out they're over here twisting their fingers up. Oh, I have a picture of a couple of them on LASDgangs.com. You can see a picture of a Linwood Viking throwing up the Linwood L. The Linwood L. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm mad I nailed that first time out the gate. I am just blown away by not only that there are gangs within the gangs fighting each other, but... How many gangs at this point have you uncovered? 24. How is there room for this many gangs? Yeah, a lot of it is generational. Sometimes when, you know, the gang members that have been there for a long time are retiring or aging out, the younger guys will say, okay, well, it's time to start our own thing. Sometimes guys in different units say, I I, want to start my own gang. And they start it. Some gangs, they number their tattoos sequentially. Some tattoos are only allowed to get up to 100. And once they hit that 100 mark, it rolls over and a new deputy gang is formed. Wow. This sounds almost like the Vogue houses and how they are born that I learned on Legendary. And except they're fighting with dance and fashion and they're not killing people. So it's not quite the same. How does this work with other gangs? Like, like when I think of gangs, I think of Crips and I think of Bloods and I think of, you know, the the the, the Latin Kings, etc. Is there any cross respect or clashing that happens within those gang cultures? In the 1990s, um, the Linwood Vikings, which were another explicitly white supremacist gang, a federal judge actually wrote a ruling where he said that this is a neo-Nazi gang. They went to war in the 1990s with a Latino gang by the name of Young Crowd, also in the Linwood area. And several people died as mm-hmm. a result of this. Of Lots of people went to jail from Young Crowd. And eventually this ended up in court because Young Crowd decided to sue the county as a result of... Wait, the gang decided to sue the county? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that was possible. Is the gang an LLC? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) 
How can a gang sue the county? They got together and they spoke to their membership and they also spoke to another local gang that they were in conflict with. They brokered a truce in order to go after the county and the Vikings deputy gang. And they were successful in that the Linwood station eventually closed and they won several um, tenements in a settlement along with financial compensation to track these deputies and make this information available to the public. Of course, the county did not do any of that. Um, but, you know, to pull off something like that in the 1990s, um, when amongst people that have perhaps lengthy criminal records that have this negative association because of the neighborhood they're from and who they may be friends with, I think is pretty incredible. I think the most incredible part of that is where you said they brokered a truce in order to come together against a greater enemy. And, you know, when we think about what that's going to take in terms of like coming together to really challenge these police departments, that sounds like the blueprint because it's not just going to be civilians that have to come together. Like I'm not in a gang. And I can get with all the non-gang members, but like, we don't got no guns. Like, I mean, we have our personal weapons perhaps, but I think there's a different, there's a different regard that criminals have for other criminals. Like there's a different understanding that is had. I know this because I've dated criminals. Um, (laughs) And I remember someone I dated saying, you know, the police need us. Police need criminals because crime gives them something to do. And, you know, we somewhat need the police because we use the police against each other. And I was fascinated by that because I never considered it to be a symbiotic relationship as much as a contentious relationship. But then when you see this and you hear these stories, it's so deep and dark. Like, how do you even stay hopeful? Or are you? I mean, not that you have to Am I hopeful? It's a dark time. Hmm. I mean, I'm always hopeful that things will change, but I am a realist. You know, I think that I think that change is possible. I don't know if I'm going to see it in my lifetime. I don't know that the deputy gang issue will be resolved. I don't know if we will see the end of deputy gangs while I'm still here on this planet. I hope so. Right. But I also know that this has been happening since the 1960s. Since the 60s? Yes. Take me back. Yeah. I interviewed a former lieutenant from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and he shared with me- Was this on your podcast? This was on my podcast, The Tradition of Violence. Um, He shared with me about his first days at the Sheriff's Department. And in the academy, they sat them down and said, look, there is a gang at the East Los Angeles station called the Little Red Devils. We know about it. We don't like it. Don't join it. We can't do anything about it. We're not going to do anything about it. But you all shouldn't be part of it. That's it. That's all. And he went to the East Los Angeles station and there were little red doubles. I've spoken to quite a few people from that era who have told me, yeah, I was invited to join. It was, what made them not join? I don't know if they said no. Ah, uh, Well, why were they talking to you? That's a great question. People love to share their stories with me. What do you think that is? What is it about you that you feel like people love to share their stories with you? I think some people want to prove me wrong. Some people that, 
were part of this nefarious behavior want to prove me wrong and say, yeah, I did that, but you got it wrong. I was really doing it to be noble and do something right, which I, I don't agree with. The math is not mathing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Some people want to help. Some people have regrets about mm-hmm. what they may have done in the past and are hoping to Cleanse set it right. Karma. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by like what causes people to be like, no, I'm going to put this out there, you know, because like you said, there's so many different reasons, but there's also not been any like active change that's been happening from the inside. And when I heard about this concept of the gangs, it also just made me say once again, that this idea of policing is such a flawed concept. What have you uncovered from doing this work that has changed or formed your opinion around policing? Mm. I mean, I, I grew up here in Los Angeles. I've definitely, you know, witnessed police abuse. I've experienced police abuse myself firsthand. I never really had a good outlook on policing structures. But I think doing this work really just confirmed to me how deeply it goes. And it's not just you know, policing agencies, they are helped along by institutions that, you know, we rely on day to day. The County Board of Supervisors, for example, the District Attorney's Office. Mm. Um, these are all agencies that, you know, they, the deputy gangs couldn't get away with this stuff if there was someone checking them actively. And everyone works in concert together to allow these things to happen and to allow there to be no accountability. That's what was new. I think that that's the part that I feel like a lot of people may not grasp is that it always goes beyond the police. You know, like there's the DA's department. And like, I remember when Kamala was the DA in the Bay, she would call herself the top cop, you know? And you're like, well, how is the DA like related to the police department? But the DA's who tries the cases of the police department and basically like the goal is to always get a conviction. Don't bring me that case. Haven't you all watched these shows? You know, don't bring me that case unless I can get a conviction. And so the police will do whatever they can to ensure that there's a conviction, which oftentimes is framing people, you know, planting evidence, lying, et cetera, et cetera. And now that you hear there's a gang, you find out that it's like it's not even an individual that's moving in that way. Now they have the support of a network. Yes. Yeah. So what what happens now? Well, the Civilian Oversight Commission, which oversees the sheriff's department as a sort of monitor, last year opened the first ever investigation into deputy gangs. um, And they cited my reporting and the announcement of that, which was... How'd that feel? I mean, that felt fantastic. My goal in writing this was to bring awareness and hopefully inspire someone to do something. Having the agency responsible for oversight open an investigation was like quite literally a dream come true. They've held eight hearings now where they've had deputies coming and testifying about abuses they've experienced firsthand in the department. And they just released a report documenting everything that they found. At their last hearing, they said that they are going to have a supplemental hearing to hear from families that have experienced this harassment. That was one part that wasn't really included in the report was the accounts of these families, because not only do these families lose loved ones very often when they speak out to members of the media and call attention to what was done, 
they are harassed. They are followed home at night by deputies. They have deputies parked outside their homes. They're pulled over on their way to work and, you know, charged with drug possession when there is nothing there as a just trying to mess with them and make them shut up. That we really didn't hear a lot about in these hearings. So the Civilian Oversight Commission is going to hold a hearing dedicated specifically to these families, which I think is a huge part of this story and probably the scariest part of this story. Why do you say that? I think when you have a government institution actively working to silence people who are speaking out about abuse, that is something that is chipping at the very fabric of our democracy in this country. And that's very frightening. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed immediately. Do you believe in the concept of defund the police? Do I personally? Mm-hmm. I do think that there is a lot of wasteful spending in many police departments. This is a different agency, the LAPD. They had a operation a couple of years ago where they removed, um, forcibly removed an encampment of unhoused people from a local park. Yeah. Many people were hurt in that operation. It was about 400 police officers that did that. It cost the city millions of dollars. And a report came out as a result of that, uh, looking at, oh, what could have we done better? And one of the things that they said they could have done better, of course, training, da-da-da, so on and so forth. But one thing they asked for that really blew my mind was snacks. They said that in the future they would need a million dollars for snacks for police officers because they get a little hangry when they're doing things like that. So the police want craft services on set. That's what you're telling me. Yes. Can't get them a Snickers. They need full snacks, goldfish, wheat thins, nature's valley. Got it. I'm always the police, the sheriff's department, like these factions, I feel like they exist so close in proximity to just regular people, but they feel so far away at the same time because I have no true relationship with them other than like, are you going to hurt me if I ask you to help me? And I have yet to ever hear any positive stories come from within a police department or sheriff's department, like never. And here you come and you're doing this research and you're saying, okay, it gets worse. It gets worse. It gets worse. It gets deeper. It gets deeper. Was there any story that stood out to you that made you really just say like, this is no longer just something I'm doing because I'm curious. This is something I'm doing because I have to do this. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything that I do, all of this reporting, I feel like Hmm. I have to do this. At this point, I'm so far into it and so deep into it. I don't think anyone out there knows as much as I do about this. I don't think anyone has the same connections and sources that I have at this point. (laughs) A little bit. A little bit. I'm the expert. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people, I mean... Every day I talk to families that still have lost people. Oh, yeah. And I'm meeting new families every month. That's the other thing. Like, these killings just keep happening. And Already this year, the sheriff's department has shot seven people. And it's, it's March, you know? I don't think many of us could really understand that so much of this killing was associated with gangs. You know, I think for a lot of us, we think it's just associated with being a police officer. 
you know, or being a sheriff. And it's really just because of that line of work. So to hear that there's something even more insidious going on is honestly shocking because it's like it was insidious enough. And it makes me wonder where a solution could be. So if you had your way, what would you want to happen? Well, I think the first thing that needs to happen is all of the deputies that we know that are in these criminal deputy gangs need to be fired. Yep. There's no reason to retain a law enforcement officer who has consistently broken the law. That's completely nonsensical. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a fantastic step one. Okay. Step two. Step two. I think there needs to be a policy that outright bans participation in deputy gangs and doesn't allow for grandfathering in of people that, you know, may have joined a gang last year or 10 years ago. But, hey, that doesn't count because we're only going from today. That's it's nonsense. Again, it needs to be everyone and it needs to be zero tolerance policy. A lot of times what happens is, you know, the department will find out about this and, oh, we'll just transfer him to that station. He won't do any harm over there. No. In fact, they bring this gang culture with them and then they spread it, spread it. Exactly. They're training people about it. And another thing to mention is departments all over the world come and train here in Los Angeles with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. So even if you don't live here in L.A., this could be a problem that is impacting your life. Yep. Because that was my next question. Do you have any curiosity about expanding this investigation beyond L.A.? I hear from people, again, probably every day across the United States and now the world that are telling me about problematic behavior that they're seeing on the street as a civilian. Or a lot of the times, Amanda, what I hear from our police officers that are trying to blow the whistle about their coworkers that they say are in a gang, that they say are beating people up to the point of death sometimes, mm-hmm. severely injuring people. And they tell me I've gone through the Internal official affairs. channels and nothing happens. And I'm at the end of my rope. I feel threatened because I'm calling out this system and now the system is coming down on my head. I just... I am really just genuinely thankful to you because it takes a certain kind of person to even just decide, like, not only does this need to get done, but it's going to get done by me. And as a woman pursuing this, how do you think that hurt or helped you in being able to get this information? I think women are very empathetic. And a lot of people have told me when they're watching me interview someone or meet someone that... I'm very compassionate and I really let that lead me, whether mm-hmm. I'm talking to a, a member of the Vikings or a Viking. Yeah. I right. mean, I always try to find that common thread because, you know, when someone can relate to you, they're going to tell you a lot more. Right. And I think people often underestimate women. For me, I feel like people think that I'm unintelligent, that I don't really understand these concepts. Too pretty to be smart. Can't be smart with all that eye makeup on. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I use that to my advantage, you know? Like, my I'm thing so is, like, dumb, really? Like... <laughs> Tell me why I'm wrong. Right, right, what? right. Yeah. I play into that, of course. <laughs> nice, nice. Flip it on them. Yeah. I love it. How do you think it's hurt you? I think that... If at all. Well, I mean, I've been 
the subject of a lot of really like sexist attacks online. Um, Interesting. I've had a lot of, yeah, I've had a lot of like rape threats, um, which is really common for, you know, not just me, but women in journalism. It's extremely common for us to face harassment like that. It's, it's an epidemic and something that I think a lot of people don't know about, but it's something that we should all be paying attention to. You don't have to be a woman reporting on deputy gangs to have someone feel like it's okay to send you a personalized rape threat with your home address. Oh. I've had many friends of mine that are women subjected to treatment like that. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. It's it's horrible. But yeah, something that something that people should be aware of and yeah. like doing what we can to, you know, when we see that shut it down and call it out. At this point I really feel like investigative journalists are doing the work that I think a lot of people expect the police to do. And I'd love for you to just speak more to what makes the work you do different than just like, you know, someone who's writing for the Times or, you know, on CNN, because investigative journalism is a different thing. Yeah, it's a slow drip. It's a slow burn. And I don't really put this stuff down. It's, you know, answering my phone right away when I get a call from an important source. It's maintaining that relationship with people. It's showing up to events and staying at events and always being there, doing your homework, reading the hundreds and thousands of pages of litigation and familiarizing yourself with it. One thing that unfortunately is really common because the journalism industry is being decimated. We lose three local papers a day. A day? A day to it shutting down venture capital firms that buy them up and then gut them. It's it's horrible. And the public is really suffering as a consequence of that. So oftentimes what happens is the newsrooms that are functioning are responsible for huge areas that it's impossible to cover well. You know, you have one person. I've heard of newsrooms that literally have one person responsible for three counties. How could you possibly be doing a good job and making the public aware of what's going on when you're tasked with such a huge, insurmountable task. So what happens as a result is you get these people parachuting in. They don't know anything. They file the story, which isn't a very good story. And that's what goes out to the public. And that's really unfortunate because you're missing a lot of those really important details that give you the full picture. Well, we want to give people an even fuller picture of you. And so, you know, we always go to the questions. So we, as usual, solicited some questions from you all, and we're going to ask Cerise some of these questions, and then we're going to go to the Patreon. So I'm going to start with this one. What is the role of the community to address this problem with the gangs? And what can we do to support and contribute to making change? Yeah, so the role of the community, I would say the number one request that I hear from families that are living this firsthand is to support them, to show up to their events, to sign petitions that they are putting forward, to go to these board of supervisors hearings, to the civilian oversight commission hearings, and let the elected officials know that more needs to be done and what exactly you would like to see. There is an outlet for that. So that would be number one. Second, I would say 
is all of this is controlled by elected officials, right? The board of supervisors is the one that decides the budget. The sheriff's department, he's an elected official too, and he's the one that decides what policy is going to be for members. It's the district attorney who decides that they're not going to file on, you know, deputies that are members of criminal gangs and participating in criminal activity. They're responsible to us. They're beholden to us, the voters. And we need to not be afraid to call them out when they're not doing what we're doing. You know, writing a letter, leaving a message, showing up at a press conference. And I know people love to do that, yelling at them. That's (laughs) that's your First Amendment right. You know, like I, I know some editorial writers at the Los Angeles Times don't like that. But hey, you're a voter. This is America. And you are well within your right to let people know when they're not doing a good job. And like, it doesn't have to be polite. You know, I think at a certain point, it becomes where there's this expectation that everybody needs to like be sweet and be asking. And at a certain point, you have to demand, you know, these are people that are elected officials. And it seems like we are giving our votes to them to be in position to represent us. But then we still have to be like, please, sir, more food, sir. Can you please, um, you know, work and stop the gang, sir? And it's like, why do we have to do so much asking and pleading and requesting when really it should be a demand and we put you in office do the goddamn thing another question are there any stories that you're afraid of tackling as a journalist no 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 the death threats now just that make was like me laugh. so like honestly no Nothing. No, I mean, I had a deputy the other day tell me that if he didn't like what I wrote, he would kill me. And I just, that shit just makes me laugh. Like, okay. Like, if you really feel that way, a lot of it is just talk, you know? Like, okay. And if you do kill me, like, I guess the story was really good. Like, (laughs) are you sure you're not a comic? That's such a dark take. And I love it. I mean, well, here's a question for you Were you always this fearless? No, no, no. And it took literally like hitting my professional low, hitting like the bottom professionally and being in a place where I felt completely devalued and gaslit constantly to to really just break and be like, no more. I'm over it. I'm not taking this shit anymore. I'm out of fucks to give and I'm going full speed ahead the way I see fit. Are you afraid of death? No. Why do you think that is? I've lived a good life. I try to do as much good as I can, both in my personal and professional life. And I think when I die, I'm going to a good place. I've already lost some very close loved ones already, and I know they're waiting for me, so I won't be alone. Yeah. Because I really, I ask that of people who do work or who are loud right? About this type of work or who are just simply loud about being subversive. Because I think that's what ultimately stops a lot of people is this fear of death, whether it's career death, you know, or actually like a physical death. And when you don't have that, it's amazing how freeing it is. Yes. Yes. The best thing that ever happened to me, both personally and professionally, was just to stop caring a little bit. That's what they say. Once the fucks are gone. After the fucks are gone. <laughs> Everything right is wrong. Listen, it's, it's what it is. These next questions 
are only for the SEAL squad. So go on over to Patreon to theamandaverse.com and check out the rest of our interview right here with investigative journalist and hero. Thank okay? you. Because this is heroic stuff. Thank you. Hero Series Castle. The last dose. What would you say in closing is the biggest problem with having these gangs in the sheriff's department? Why is this issue so important and why is it something that people need to be educated about? This issue is important because it the deputy gang culture informs every aspect of operations within the sheriff's department. It informs why people are getting arrested. It informs how deputies are performing their jobs. It informs who is getting promoted and who ends up running the department. And it informs how people that are coming into the department, either as rookies or from outside agencies, are being trained. And what they're being told is good police work and what they're taking home with them to their home counties, what these deputies are taking home to their families, to their wives and children. Well, there you have it, y'all. This is a a bombshell. And I think it's really something that a lot of us are not surprised about, but that we need to know about. And right now, it just feels like a lot of... <sighs> We're in an age of idiocy as well as an age of like the sewer, you know, bursting open and all the shit coming to the top. And it requires people like yourself being willing to get covered in shit. <laughs> so thank you so much for your service. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on the show and speaking about this. And I'm glad that we can be a part of just continuing to amplify the story and your work. And congrats on the awards that you have won. Thank you so much. I didn't even know there was awards in like courageous journalism. Yeah, they they have journalism awards. I've never I never won any before, but. It's, well, you've it's fantastic. Now. You've happened now. So <laughs> thank, thank you. you so much. And, you know, I wish you the best in terms of safety and also in terms of breakthroughs in thank your you. journalism. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Anytime. 